Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. We start the rehearsal and I'm up there, I'm singing, I'm dancing, I'm smiling. And then she stops the whole rehearsal. Everybody stops, stops. She goes, look at him, look at him. You see him? He's sick, he's here, he's singing, he's smiling. You gotta <laughs> learn from him. And I was like, oh, that's me. <laughs> so it was a moment of like positive reinforcement, made me feel I can do this. And then the year later, eighth grade, I come back and I get the lead. I'm Little Abner and Little Abner. Okay. And you know, I've been bitten, I, I loved it. And I just wanted to do it. And, and I, every time I tell, I, I, I tell a story how like, Throughout my my schooling, they would always be like, oh, you've got what it takes to do this. So my parents would come to the shows and the director or the teacher would say, you know, your kid's got the thing for this. And my parents, oh, thank you, thank you. And we'd get in the car and my dad would be like, that bitch is crazy. Don't listen to her. <laughs> You're going to be a doctor or a lawyer. Hi, I'm Maz Jobrani and I am bald. Hi, friends. Welcome back here to Off the Beat. It is I, your trusty host, Brian Baumgartner. Today, I have a very special treat for you because, as you just heard, my guest is the hilarious actor and stand-up comedian, Moss Jobrani. Now, if you know anything about Moss, you know comedy isn't his only specialty. He actually studied political science at UC Berkeley and then later dropped out of his PhD program to do what? Yes, to pursue comedy. It's what all smart folks do. This was a great move for Moss. He now has six comedy specials, a memoir, and countless TV appearances. Today, we're going to dive into his unique take on comedy, not shying away from hard topics like politics and and race and, and why humor has unique power to make this kind of statement. And yeah, okay, we're going to crack some jokes along the way. This one it is pretty, pretty special. Let's jump right in with my friend and yours, Moss Jobrani. 
squeak, I love it. Bubble and squeak, I know. Bubble and squeak, I cook it every morning. Left over from the night before. Hi, Moz. Hey, Brian. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, buddy. What's going on? Hey, you know what? Not a whole lot, but I'm excited to see you. Where are you right now? I'm in Los Angeles. Where are you? Okay. Well, so it's 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 a it's a rainy day in Southern California. I'm there as well. It's insane. Yeah. Crazy, right? Yeah. And there's nothing more boring than talking about the weather, but it's a reality that's happening. It's a reality, and it's here. also, I've been, my whole life, I've been in California, like, since I was six years old, and the, la- the only time I remember it raining almost this bad was, uh, I think I was, like, in the fifth grade in Northern California, and cars were literally, like, the water was up to the window, Yeah, and it was crazy, and they made us evacuate. We lived on a, on a hillside. They made us evacuate. I don't think I've seen it this bad since and this might be worse than that i mean worse and better and all of the above yeah no it's insane cars stop today stuck uh right around my house in uh rivers of water trying to get through but uh it's so nutty but you know what it's warm and cozy here yeah between the two of us uh (laughs) i want to talk about your career have a little bit of an existential conversation about a uh, comedian versus actor. We'll do that. But I, I first want to start back at your youth. You were born in Iran, but mm-hmm. came to California very early on. Is that right? Yeah. So I was born in Iran and then uh, late 78, as there was protest, there was protests in the streets of Iran. The leader back then was the Shah and the Shah was a monarch. He was a king. He had helped modernize the country. And he had gotten the country to uh, some level of prosperity, but he had people that didn't like him because he was a king. And so clearly, you know, there were many groups that that couldn't be vocal against him. You know, you know, he had a secret police and all that kind of stuff. Okay. So there was all these different groups that were critical of him or opposed him. And what happened was these protests started started out in, in, in the streets of Iran. They got bigger and bigger and bigger. And what would happen is his uh, military or somebody would show up at the protests and they would shoot into the crowd and somebody would die. And then that would cause more protests to just grow and grow and grow. And so eventually, late 78, my father was on business in New York and he told my mom, he's like, why don't you bring the kids to New York for a couple of weeks? And um, he said, you know, hopefully things will cool down and we can all return. And uh, we didn't expect to stay this long because really we left my baby brother back there. I came with my older sister, Miriam, at the time. Uh, I was six. I guess she must have been eight. And I always like to say we packed for two weeks and we stayed for 44 years now. Jeez. Yeah. You yeah. just never went back. We never went back because things got worse and worse. And uh, early 79, the Shah actually left. And that's when the revolution really happened. And there was actually a great um, documentary that was on HBO recently called Hostages that kind of talked about that time and how Ayatollah Khomeini comes in. And really, I think a lot of people at that time thought, oh, this is going to be great because now that the Shah's gone, we'll have a democracy and everyone will get along. Well, actually, it got worse because what <laughs> right. happened was you ended up with this religious 
fundamentalist regime that didn't care about you know women's rights, LGBTQ rights, religious minority rights. They let us, then we ended up in a war with Iraq. So millions of people died there. And we've seen now more and more recently how brutal the regime is with executing people and, and imprisoning people. And just last year, they killed Massa Amini, who's this 22-year-old girl walking down the street with her hair out of her hijab just a little bit. And so it became even more brutal. And it's been hard to be away from Iran for 44 years. And I'm very American. I grew up watching baseball and football and you know playing those sports and knowing American uh, uh, media. Um, but there's always been a part of my heart that has remained in my childhood home. And it also mm -hmm. breaks my heart to see the young people of that country suffer the way they have. Um, so really all I could hope for is, is for a free Iran where they could be fully democratic like we are. Well, we're kind of democratic. We're, <laughs> I, we're going the other way. <laughs> <laughs> Would you say growing up, like how important was it for your parents for you to feel a connection to Iran? Or were you just trying to become sort of fully Americanized as a six, seven, eight-year-old? I mean, not that you were fully conscious, but looking back. I don't think that my parents even thought about it like that. I think I think that they were just they were like they assumed because my parents imagine imagine being in your at that time my mom was probably in her mid thirties or so and my dad was in his mid to late forties. Imagine if that far into your life you had to get up and just go to a totally different country. You don't speak the language. You don't you know you barely speak the language. You, you're there. The good news was my father, since he was a successful businessman. He had the resources financially. He'd brought a lot of money over, which, by the way, he ends up losing then in bad real estate investments. But <laughs> still, to come over here, I don't think that they were consciously going, oh, we, we must make sure our kids speak Persian and eat the Persian food and all that. It was just assumed that that's what it was. Okay. So they would speak Persian to us. We would speak Persian to them. There were times, actually, because my reading and writing in Persian continues to not be that great because I left when I was in the first grade. So there were times when they would sign us up for like, Persian classes on a weekend and I hated it. I was like, oh God, what a, I hate this. So, <laughs> but, but, but really culturally speaking and, and, and it, it, for them, it wasn't like they even had an option. It wasn't like my mom was going to be like, oh, um, I'm going to, I, you know, my, my dad wasn't going to be like, I'm going to watch less American sports so that you become more Iranian. It was just <laughs> like, I'm only going to speak to you in Persian and you're going to respond to me in Persian and, and, that's all there is to it, you know? Okay. What about you assimilating into learning English, going to school? Obviously, you're learning English in school, right? Yeah, well, I actually went to an international school in Iran, so I already spoke English. But okay. coming to America, I mean, you know, as a six-year-old and then seven and all those young ages, you don't want to be different. You know what right. I'm saying? It's like the last thing you want is to be different. And first coming over from Iran to America, Iran, I think, had some European influence. So my mom would dress me up a little more European-y and already in America, they're like, you know, what's wrong with you? Why are you wearing those clothes? <laughs> and then and then there was times when like just little minor things became big things in our grade, right? So we had a day called Pizza Day. And Pizza Day was where every kid was going to bring some ingredient to the school. We're going to cook pizza together. This is, I think, third grade. Okay. And so I was in charge of sausages. So I go grocery shopping with my mom and my aunt and in Persian, the word for hot dog is sosis, sausage, sosis. So we're there. I go, yeah, I need sausages. They go, oh, you need sosis. So they give me a pack of hot dogs, which, 
really is like, I mean, it is, it's, a, it's a small sausage, really. I mean, right. sausages are. It know. is. It is. Yes. So I show up with a you know pack of hot dogs, and of course all the kids, ha ah, ha, he brought hot dogs. I go, no, these are sausages. Those are hot dogs. Ah. You know, it's like ruined my 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 whole life. And I go home and tell my mom, these are not sausages. This is hot dogs. She's like, this is sausage. Now that story comes full circle. When years later I went to study abroad in Italy when I was in college, I go to a pizzeria and they have pizza with hot dogs on it. <laughs> And I'm like, you bastards. I was right all along. So, yeah. So I was just trying to blend in, man. I just wanted to be American. I I mean, I played baseball. I, I you know, American culture. Like, that's probably where I discovered. Listen, all, by the way, also, my dad, and I think this was just parenting of the time. I didn't play catch with me or any of that. I mean, he was a great father. He was very generous. He was giving. Right. It wasn't like, let's go outside and play catch, you know. <laughs> right. Um so because of that, like I was learning a lot of stuff from American television. So I'd sit there and watch hours. I'd watch Woody Woodpecker, Popeye, uh, Leave it to Beaver, all these reruns. That's that's how I think I came upon comedy. My first, you know, like finding Eddie Murphy when I was 10 years old and going, what's Saturday Night Live? I want to do this, you know? So yeah, I was trying to blend in. Yeah, I read Eddie Murphy was one of your first loves. That sounds weird, but yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. one of your heroes, uh, one of your first heroes. There you go yeah, in yeah. comedy. When did you start performing? Were you in school plays or? Yeah, it was basically so uh, in the seventh grade, there had they had a musical. I went to Del Mar Middle School in Northern California and Tiburon. They were doing The Boyfriend. And I don't know why we all decided to do it, but a handful of guys decided to do it, some girls. And I go, let's try this. So I go and I audition. And again, it was seventh and eighth. So most of the leads went to the eighth graders. Seventh graders were just background dancers. And there was a lady named Shirley Bombright. She was our director. And Shirley Bombright said, when you're doing a musical, when you're on stage, you always need to be smiling when you're dancing, smiling and singing and radiating. Oh, and she said, the other thing she said is, you're part of an ensemble, so you better be here. So one day I, I go to, the rehearsal, I go, uh, Miss Bombright, I just got to let you know I'm a little under the weather. I got a cold, but you told me I got to be here. So I came, I'm here. And then we start the rehearsal and I'm up there, I'm singing, I'm dancing, I'm smiling. And then she stops the whole rehearsal. Everybody stop, stop. She goes, look at him, look at him. You see him? He's sick. He's here. He's singing. He's smiling. You got to learn from him. And I was like, oh, that's me. <laughs> so it was a moment of like positive reinforcement, made me feel I can do this. And then the year later, eighth grade, I come back and I get the lead. I'm Little Abner and Little Abner. Okay. And, you know, I've been bitten. I, I loved it. And I just wanted to do it. And, and I, every time I tell, I, I, I tell a story how, like, throughout my, my schooling, they would always be like, oh, you've got what it takes to do this. So my parents would come to the shows and the director or the teacher would say, you know, your kid's got the thing for this. And my parents, oh, thank you. Thank you. And we get in the car. My dad would be like, that bitch is crazy. Don't listen to her. <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna be a doctor or a lawyer you know <laughs> so they had they didn't see the the spark inside you they were yeah. not interested in you pursuing this as a career right yeah least. it wasn't that they didn't see the spark it's that i think you know again immigrant parents that's all they knew and it was a previous generation i was just talking to somebody about how my daughter's 12 now and i'm encouraging her to become a dj Okay, and I was like, if I went to my Iranian dad back then, I want to be a DJ. He'd be like, a D what? You know, he'd be like, what are you talking about? But you know, we live in a different world where people are making millions on TikTok or whatever. And so back then, I don't think they understood at all what this meant or how it went. 
there was nobody in my family. There was one, my aunt had married this American guy. He was the only guy who kind of was like, oh, you're interested in this? Let's go to the bookstore and get some books on acting. No. And it was kind of having me look at that. But other than that, they I just think my parents didn't know what this was. And there was a lot of, throughout my life, it was a lot of detours, you know, because of my parents, I started political science thinking I was going to be a lawyer. Then when I went to Italy to study abroad, I thought maybe I'd come back and be a professor. So I got into a PhD program and then I dropped out of that. And then I was going to go work in advertising. But all along, I always would find opportunities to get on stage. I would find a play, a local play here, there. And I was always like, I love this. Right. But then I was like, what am I going to do with it? I mean, you know how it is. It's like, it's not like you just apply to a school and then you come out of that school and then Hollywood starts hiring you. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Or, oh, if it was that easy. Right. right? Exactly. So you mentioned getting into political science. This ends up being a significant thing for you and your career. Were you doing plays at Berkeley or... Well, because it was Berkeley, were you just finding other other ways to perform? Well, it's interesting you say that because again at Berkeley too. So I so at some year I forget what year it was. Maybe it was like my I, man, I forget what year it was. To be honest with you, it must have been senior. One of the years, as I was signing up for classes, I was like, oh, they, maybe I'll take an acting class. And I remember it was all very last minute. Did one semester of an acting class at Berkeley, and the teacher was like. You got what it takes. So every time I encountered wow. somebody who was teaching it, it, was like, you've got what it takes. And I think that just meant like, I like being a ham. I was comfortable. I wasn't self-conscious. I was up there doing it, you know? And and so even there, I was like, wow, I, I, people keep telling me, the people that are in this world keep telling me, go for it. But you within yourself you didn't couldn't make the choice to to listen to them. Yeah, I think you know, I've 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 read about this. First of all, your brain isn't developed till isn't fully developed till like your mid 20s or so. So you have a lot of stuff going on in your head, right? That maybe you're not mature. I'm always I'm always amazed by comedians who go, "I started when I was 17." I go, "What? How did you know? You know, Chappelle started when he was 14." I go, "How does that even happen?" And I had dabbled in it. I kept doing the plays, and my parents right. I think it convinced me do something legit, and then do the plays on the weekend. So I think in my mind, I was like, yeah, that's right. I'll, you know, I'll just you know, do the local playhouse and I'll be a, a lawyer, whatever. So while I was in high school, there was a talent show and they said, anybody got any talents? I said, I'd like to try my hand at stand-up. And so I would write this material. And back then, you know, I'm a teenager, so the material is mostly sex-based. Right. And also, you know, I'm influenced by Eddie Murphy and all this stuff. So one of the jokes I remember I came up with, was like, why is our genitalia in the middle of our body, which is the least comfortable place? Like it should be on our palm of our hands. So you just go around high-fiving and having sex all day. <laughs> and so I would write this and I was like, oh, this is great. And then the next day I'd read it. I go, this is horrible. So I'm in my head. Right. And I ended up canceling. I was like, guys, I can't do this. I just freaked out. And and I was actually lucky, I think, that I canceled because I, they said, okay, if you're not going to perform, you need to at least show up and help run the show just like by seating people and stuff. So turned out the audience for that show were basically a bunch of juvenile delinquents. So I, if I went up there and died in front of those guys, it would have probably, you know, quashed my dreams for the rest of my life. <laughs> right. But I didn't do it, which by the way, just a side note, years later, there's a comedian named Jeremy Hotz who's very funny. 
I saw him doing that joke. I'd never done it. I saw him doing it, which makes you go, oh, a professional did it. That wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't that bad of material. But so I tried, I didn't do it. Then when I was at Cal, one day I was having just this like horrible day and I'm sitting at this bar, it's called the Bear's Lair, and they say, stand-up comedy competition. And, and it was already on. It was like, we got to watch it. And it was like, National Lampoon's comedian, young comedian you know, of the, of the country or whatever. And the two guys who went up there, I knew one of them and the other guy I didn't know, but they were horrible. And I'm watching them and I go, my God, if they can do it, I can do it. And I always say, I always, I always say you're, you're inspired by greatness and mediocrity, right? <laughs> um, and so then I said, the next time I get a chance, I'm going to do this. So, the, so then I was listening to the hip hop station. They go, there's a comedy competition, submit your tapes. So I just came up with a tape of me doing different accents and like, like a dating tape and me being different characters. I submitted it and then they hit me back. They go, congratulations, you're one of 16 finalists. So all of a sudden I was in this stand-up comedy competition. Wow. I had no material. Right. And I had to start writing it. And I wrote like this five minute sketch that was just me doing different accents. And then I went to the hip hop station to promote it. And I quickly found out I was the only non-African-American comedian in the whole thing. Okay. And then while we're promoting it, they start doing yo mama jokes and they all know each other. They're all on the stand-up comedy circuit. I'm not. And they're like, yo mama this, yo mama that. And I'm sitting in the middle. I'm like, what, what am I doing? <laughs> and again, Brian, what was interesting was the guy who put this competition together was like a real estate agent who I think was trying to make a quick buck. So he'd gotten a theater in Oakland and was going to do this show with all these people. And... I guess he had trouble selling tickets. And again, I think I lucked out because if I'd gone up in front of whatever it was, few thousand people, African-American crowd and done my little stupid act, I would have bombed. <laughs> it would have been the death of me, you know? And so again, I didn't get a chance to do it then. And so then I was like, okay, I've got this in my back pocket. Let me see what I do. So then I come down to LA, I'm working in that summer. And it just so happens that the, another person working in this place I'm working is Alex Borstein. Okay. Uh, you know, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel yes. and uh, all that. Um, so she tells me, she goes, yeah, I'm doing some stand-up. You want to come come with me? We'll go. So we went to a place called Gallagher's in the Valley. And I took that stinky act of mine with the accents. And I did it at Gallagher's. And the owner of the club was like, hey, you're pretty good. You know, give me your name and number. I gave it to him. Then I did it at the Improv in Santa Monica. And it, again, it was mediocre. This is my two, first two times doing stand-up. It was, you know, you're horrible, right. but you're, but you, but you got a little something. Right. And then I just, uh, uh, went back to school. And again, with my parents, you you go to grad school and all that. And I just let it go. And it wasn't for another few years until I really got serious with it. What helped you make the decision to be serious with it? So I go to grad school for political science at UCLA. I go audition for their main stage play. I get in. I love it. It's very avant-garde. And by night, I'm doing a play. By day, I'm going to my poli-sci classes. And all the poli-sci conversations are like, what is the purpose of a political scientist? And it's like, well, it's not about teaching. It's about publish or perish. Come up with a thesis, go around the world and defend it, and then write another book. Right. And if you're lucky enough, some politician may use one of your ideas to like, you know. <laughs> I was like, well, this is horrible. So by night, I'm like loving it at the play. By day, I'm like, oh, what am I doing? So I drop out of grad school. Then I get a job in advertising because again, I felt like I needed some sort of secure job. 
While I'm there, I start doing some plays just as a hobby. And then I was in my mid-20s and I was at the advertising agency. There was a guy by the name of Joe Ryan who was in his 60s. And Joe was a producer at the ad agency, one of the nicest people ever, kind of like a guardian angel of sorts for me. And there was a play I was doing and I was making copies of the tape, dubbing the tape in the dub room to give to the other actors. And Joe happened to be in the dub room and he watches. He goes, hey, you're pretty funny. Have you ever thought about doing this professionally? And I was like, Joe, my middle school teacher told me to do it. My high school teacher, university. I go, I've been wanting to. And I said, you know what I'm going to do, Joe? I'm going to work for a few more years, you know, put away some money. And then when I'm 30, I'm going to try it. And he goes, let me talk to you for a second. Took me in his office. He goes, look, I'm in my, he goes, I'm in my 60s right now. And he goes, there were some things I wanted to do when I was in my 20s and I never did it. So he goes, if you really want to do it, do it. And it was a light bulb moment. I was like, you're totally right. Right then and there, I went and signed up for improv acting classes at the Acme Theater, which is where Alex had gone. And then while I was there, uh, Judy Carter, who was a stand-up comedian who teaches stand-up comedy, she happened to be in the class with me. And she's like, hey, you know, I teach stand-up comedy classes. I go, oh my God, I always felt comfortable on stage, but I just never knew what to write about. So I took her class, and then from there I just went. And uh, that was it, I was in my mid-20s, and that was 24 years ago, 25 years ago, jeez. Wow. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. 
a lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Were you interested at all in becoming an actor, or for you, was it about being a stand-up comedian? It was both. I love both, you know? So I came from acting, you know, the whole time my, as from a kid, I was always acting, acting, acting. And I was like, oh, this is great. You get to work with people. You get to put something up. And then, and then once I got into acting in front of the camera, again, a lot of fun. But I also was a big fan of stand-up. I just, I, I, you know, the problem, I'd been intimidated by stand-up because when you do a play, if, if something doesn't go right, you can blame the other actors, the director, the writer. There's a lot of people to blame. Right. When you do stand-up, I thought, oh my God, if people don't laugh, this is my soul that they're not laughing at, you know? But then I've come to learn now that I do stand-up, stand-up is also a work in progress, so you should never give any set too much weight. Whether you kill or you die, you're going to get up again that same night or the next night, and you'll go again, you know? Okay. Um, I, I like to compare it to like a canvas of a piece of art that's never done until you film it, put it out as a special, and then you work on your next canvas. So... I love both. I've always loved both. I guess the immediacy of stand-up comedy is pretty amazing. Do you consider yourself a comedian or an actor? I, you know, both again. Like I, like okay. I, I was just, it's interesting because recently I haven't had as many acting gigs for probably multiple reasons. One is I'm touring a lot. Two is, as you know, it's just like this world seems to have gotten, I was just reading an article about how competitive it's gotten past the pandemic. Because before the pandemic, that casting director would call in 15 or 20 people he knew or she knew, we'd audition and one of us would get it. Now they're getting 100 tapes coming in from all over the place. So it's even harder to get parts. And so because of that, I've been acting less, but I was just looking because somebody was asking for my reel and I was looking at some acting stuff I did and I was like, oh, that was fun. I go, I'm pretty good. So <laughs> I, I'm confident in what I've done and I'm confident in being able to do it again and I want to do it again. And really it just comes down to like, A, wanting to be involved in quality projects be getting a chance to do stuff that's fun and challenging you know you, you know i took a i took an acting gig one time they were doing uh this play called homebody cobble which was written by tony kushner yes and the director was frank galati and they put it up at the amundsen center and maggie gyllenhaal was playing one of the parts and um linda Eman. it was it was a good, good you know all new york actors and i thought to myself gosh when else am i getting a chance to do a show at the amundsen center and the only thing was I played this doctor. I do basically like a two or three minute monologue describing the injuries that have happened to this woman. And it's all very technical. And then I'm done. And I got nothing else in a three hour play. And I'll be honest with you. At first I was like, oh, this is going to be cool. And then the more I did it, I was like, I, what am I doing? Because also it was taking away my nights because usually I'm, I'm a stand up. So I got to right. go do stand up. And it got to a point where I like, 
brought a guitar. I was learning guitar backstage. I was having fun with the other actors. I would go for a run like around downtown LA while they're act while they're doing the play. I'm jogging. That's amazing. Um, a couple of times I left the show, went to the comedy store, did a set and came back just to take a bow. Stop and it. I swear. And then I thought, I was like, you know what? I'm never going to do a project again because, oh, so-and-so's in it. I want to be in it. It's like, right. no, you should do it because it's something that excites you. Otherwise, you're just going to be like a weekend. You're going to be like, I'm done. You know, The comedy store you just brought up. Talk to me a little bit about your history with the place and, and how it affected your career. Comedy store is like the mecca of stand-up comedy. I guess it was like 99 or so. And uh, the way you used to become a regular, Mitzi Shore, who's Polly Shore's mother, was the owner of the club. And you would have to be recommended by another comedian. There was a comedian named Mike Marino. He's still a friend of mine. Mm -hmm. He, I got him to recommend me. And then when you're recommended, that means on Sunday night when they're doing the open mic night, after all the open micers, which by the way, it's a circus. It's like you get, you get like, you know, pimps and you get like <laughs> uh, crazy people it's really crazy after all those you get the showcasers and so people that have been recommended so you do three minutes and if mitzi likes you they get word back to you to come back a few weeks later to do six minutes you do six minutes if she likes you you get somebody gets word to you she doesn't talk to you by the way it's like very mafia she doesn't really? talk to you yeah yeah she's not she would sit in the back there's an exit like a little exit sign right at the back of the original room yeah the original room is this dark room and there's an exit sign at the back of the room from the stage that you have to walk through and Mitzi would sit at the chair right next to it. She'd be eating her popcorn. So every time you're done, you walk past her, but she wouldn't talk to you. Like you're not, you're, you're nobody still. So three minutes, six minutes, no talking, come back and do 10 minutes. If once you did the 10 minutes, if she liked you on the way out, she would grab your arm and then, you know, she'd tell you you're a regular, which means now you can come perform there on a regular basis. So I did my three, six, 10, and then I'm passing by her and it felt like a, a lifetime. Like it's only 20 <laughs> feet, but it felt like a mile. And then she grabbed my arm and I was like, oh my God, it's happening. I go, this is where Eddie Murphy used to perform. This is where Robin Williams. I'm thinking to myself, this is it. My career's taking off. She pulls me in. She goes, you're very funny. And that's how she used to talk. You're very funny. I go, thank you, Mitzi. She goes, I'm going to make you a regular. I go, thank you, Mitzi. She goes, have you ever thought about wearing the outfit? I go, what outfit? She goes, you know, the hat and the gown. I go, hat and gown. Yeah, the hat and the gown. I go, oh my gosh, she wanted me to wear a turban and a dishtasha on stage. And I was like, uh, sure, that sounds like a great idea. And so then, so then I walk down the stairs and I go, what did I just agree to do? And I'm freaking out. I go, oh my God, I got to wear a turban on stage. And I was like, this will be the end. And so then she was old at the time. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, this is a Sunday night. I go by tomorrow when the booker calls me. I'm hoping Mitzi's forgotten about the outfit. So the booker calls me. The first thing she says, her name is Corey. She goes, Maz, congratulations. I heard you're, you're, you're regular. I go, yeah. And she goes, and Mitzi told me you're going to wear the outfit. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> so now I'm talking to Corey. I'm like, Corey, listen, I don't know if I should. I'm not, you know, what happens if I don't? She goes, do I really have to tell you? Like, meaning like, you're not going to get any spots. And then I, and then she tried to convince me. She goes, listen, Mitzi is a genius. She sees something in you. She helped Roseanne Barr create her character. Andrew Dice Clay came up with the Dice Man at the comedy store. This is Mitzi seeing something for you. Just do it. And now I'm like debating, how do I get out of not wearing a turban on stage? So now I start negotiating with her. I'm like, listen, what if I do my act? And then at the end, I have a character 
and he puts on the turban. She's like, that's great. And then I go, what if I do the act? And then at the end, he doesn't put on the turban, but he's like this, uh, like, uh, um, this like Palestinian guy, whatever. I had all these different characters. Right. Finally, after a little bit of research, I was reminded, first of all, my father had moved back to Iran at that point. And then there had also been some Iranian, I don't know, commentator or comedian or something who used to go on the Persian TV stations here in Los Angeles, which does everything in Persian and it broadcasts all over the world. And he used to make fun of the mullahs in Iran. So supposedly he was at a outdoor rally somewhere and some supporters of the mullah showed up and they threw rocks and they blinded the guy. So I took that as my ammunition and I called Corey, the booker. I said, Corey, listen, I've been doing the research. I'm getting the turban together. Just so you know, first of all, my father's in Iran. So if I do this and word gets back that his son is making fun of mullahs, he might be in trouble. I go, secondly, there was a guy here who made fun of them and they threw rocks, they blinded him. So I said, they might even come after me. I go, worse yet, they might come after the club. And so she was like, she's like, let me call you back. And a few minutes later, she calls. She's like, you know what? Mitzi said, wear something comfortable. You'll be fine. <laughs> so I got out of wearing the outfit, man. Oh, <laughs> uh, how do you credit your time there as, as launching your career? Do you believe that Absolutely. was it? That, I, I always, that arm grab by Mitzi changed your career? Absolutely, because that's where I grew exponentially. Because what happens is, and this is what I tell young comics all the time, you need to grow in uncomfortable situations. So Mitzi uh, used to put me up at like midnight on a Tuesday. And I'd be at the comedy store, like hanging out with Joe Diaz, and there's Joe Rogan, and there's like, you know, and then Andrew Dice Clay bumps you, and then Eddie Griffin bumps you, and they're all doing like really dirty material, and you got to go up after that and do jokes about the Iraq war, <laughs> you know? Uh, but I learned, I learned so much from that. Like one of the things I learned was to always, you know, if you can, if the comedian before you says something outlandish or something that just kills, reference that because the audience then knows you were in the room. But if you go up and go, did that guy just say blah, blah, blah? And they laugh, that already is a laugh. And you're in the room with them. Um, and then you go from there. Yeah. I learned so much, you know, Joe Diaz told me one time, um, that there was another comedian who he saw, I think, I think he was at the laugh factory or something. And there was a comedian that was killing and there was another comedian who was supposed to go next. And the other comedian was like, Oh God, I, I don't want to go next. Yeah. You know, for those people who don't know, Joey Diaz is like, he talks like this. Hey, he's very gruff like that. And he goes, comedy store comics. We just go for it. Like we, it, and the truth is because I'd had to go up after these killer comedians it never came to my mind that oh you have an option to go to the booker and be like hey i don't want to follow that it's like you got to follow it right you know so yeah i grew exponentially at the comedy store and i owe i owe that club and mitzi shore a lot and that's why i filmed my special there was because it was it was really special to me you've also played a lot of roles in film and television the west wing descendants malcolm in the middle what was the first role in film and television that you feel like helped you to grow in that industry, both in terms of awareness and in terms of your own work? It's interesting, Brian, because, you know, we think we're known for one thing and then somebody knows us for a completely different thing. Right. And you just never know what that thing's going to be. So I did the movie Friday After Next, where I played Molly, 
who was this guy who owns a donut shop. I hired Mike Epps and uh, Ice Cube to work at my my strip mall. Um, and as I did it, you know, Cat Williams was me. Cat Williams and Terry Crews were the three new cast members that joined the Friday family on that. And um, when I was on set, a lot of people coming up going like, "This is this is going to launch your career. This is the thing, man. This is the thing." Right. And it did help my notoriety or my people knowing me within certain communities, but it wasn't a movie that was seen by the industry as much. But still, like in the comedy scene, when I would go do comedy shows, you know, sometimes I go do like Latino rooms or something. And people were like, "Hey, Molly," you know, and like. My, my buddy who was a comedian goes, you got to bring some headshots. They'll buy them from you. So I was like selling merchandise after my show. I was like, I'm, I was like, I'm nobody, but these guys are buying this stuff. But it was interesting because I'd done Friday After Next and I'd also gotten this commercial. There was a commercial for, I think for like Chevy or something where I'm driving a car and that song comes on. The, the song, there used to be a song that goes, andale, andale, mami, ia, ia, oh, oh, not happening now, whatever that is. Okay. So when that song comes on, I start breaking to the song, like taking breaks, and, I mean, breaking the car. And so the guy's trying to drink his coffee and, and he keeps you know, messing with him, basically. Right. And it became kind of a popular commercial. It was running a lot. So Spike Lee is going to direct a Pepsi commercial and it's for the Super Bowl. And I get an audition for it. And I go there and there's like a thousand people lined up just all the way out. Right. And my brother-in-law, who's also an actor, I think he was there and a few other people that I recognize, we're all standing around. And we're all standing in line, and then they're on break. So Spike Lee has walked out, and he's walking past everybody. Everyone's kind of got their eyes on Spike Lee. They're like, oh, there's, there's Spike Lee. <laughs> and then he walks up to me out of everybody, and he goes, and and now, so Friday After Next has just come out. The commercials just come out. And Spike Lee goes, hey, man, you're the guy from, and I was, about, I was waiting for him to go Friday. He goes, you're the guy from that commercial. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. And then, and then when I went in to do the 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 audition for him, they would say, "Step forward, say something about yourself, and then step back." So I step forward. I go, "Yeah, my name is Maz Jobrani. I'm a comedian." And then Spike Lee goes, "And tell them you're the guy from the commercial." And I was like, "Yeah, I guess I am." So you know, to Spike Lee, I was the guy from the commercial. Meanwhile, I thought I was going to be the guy from the movie. So really, it's hard to tell. Like, oh, that thing. You know, that, that that led to the next thing. I mean, you know, I was on a couple of TV shows. You know, I did Descendants was a Disney movie. I didn't think anything of it. I played Jafar and it was kind of a small part. And then one day I'm I'm sitting there at a pool at a tennis club with my kids. At the time they were like, I don't know, eight or nine. I'm just sitting there, they're swimming. I'm like eating a burger or something. And this group of kids, they all start kind of like on the swim in the swim pool, like five or six kids, they start kind of coming towards me swimming like, over yeah i'm like what the hell is going on? I go, this is weird and then they come over they go excuse me i go yeah they go are you jafar i go yeah they go, oh my god i go you're his favorite and i'm like it was a small part i don't know if my i think the kid's lying i think he's <laughs> bullshitting but okay but still i was known to them as jafar i had no idea i hadn't even thought about the fact that i was gonna have like eight-year-old an eight-year-old fan base what a thought right right you know? did you feel like there was a learning curve once you got on set and were acting in front of a camera as opposed to, you know, what at that point you were doing a lot of, which was was standing up in front of people and having that immediate response. Well, the first thing I learned, so the first movie I ever did was a movie named Miriam, uh, written and directed by my buddy Ramin Seri. And uh, I had been used to doing plays. 
And as you know, when you're doing a play, you perform to the last seat in the theater, right? It's all very large. Right. And you do it once and you're done. And I remember just like the first day on the shoot it was an independent film. And, uh, and I think we started my first take. I was, you know, like, Hey, how are you? You know, like speaking loudly, you know, and then he comes back. He's like, uh, you can just bring it down a little bit. And I was like, okay. And then the next take was like medium level. Hey, how are you? He's like, no, no, like really bring it down. I'm like, Hey, how are you? He's like, that's perfect. I'm like, really? He goes, yeah. He's like, the camera's right there. And I go, okay. And then we did like, we did the master shot and they go, okay. Uh, actors take a break uh you guys this that and i'm walking away i go that's it and then come to find out no that's not it there's gonna be this you're gonna do this same scene 50 different angles right so yeah there was, that was the learning curve of it um you know i think you learn on on set that it's just about getting yourself there emotionally after you've been sitting in your trailer for several hours right so yeah. that's really what it's about and then and then there's the live audience which is a whole different ball game performing in front of a live sitcom audience which is it goes back to a little bit of like playing to the back but also playing within the room so it, it's all i love it man it's i love being on sets i love doing stuff you know i could do it all day long i uh have heard or read that you have said that there are roles that you would not play that you and that you have turned down can you talk to me a little bit about about that well, you know, early on in my career, it's funny because, again, I come from this place where as a kid, I played uh, Little Abner. Then in high school, we did a, we did a musical uh, of Batman. It was like our own version of Batman. So I was Batman. So in my mind, I'm like, okay, I could be Little Abner. I could be Batman. I could be a cop. I could be whatever. I could be everything. And then I come to Hollywood, and the first audition I get was actually for a security guard in the TV show Chicago Hope. I audition and the next day my agent calls me and goes hey i got another audition for walker texas ranger he's like a european terrorist and then we get calls from both saying you got both parts and but you got to choose because they both shoot the same week i go okay i said let's do the security guard but then as people find out more and more that you're of middle eastern descent clearly you're going to be offered parts of middle eastern descent and now we're in the late 90s early 2000s so auditions are coming in for terrorist parts and so I was at a day, I was at my day job at the ad agency and I was looking for, I was hoping to get enough film and TV work where I could quit uh, my day job. So right. I got this. So Chuck Norris was doing a movie of the week called um, The President's Man, A Line in the Sand. And uh, the audition, the part was a Afghan physicist who's come to Chicago to build a bomb he wants to this is before september 11th he wants to blow up a building and in my mind i'm like you know what i'll take this part but the way i will perform it i'm going to show through my acting why this guy has chosen to kill innocent americans so in in the biography that i wrote you know his parents suffered at the hands of the americans so he's always wanted vengeance and all this stuff so i go down to uh dallas where they where they film this and uh i show up and i'm playing i'm gonna be an afghan in america and so I go to the uh, to the fitting, and they go, "Here's your shirt, here's your pants, here's your turban." And I go, "Oh no, no!" I go, "Afghans in America don't wear turbans." I go, "Especially if I'm an Afghan who's thinking of blowing something up, I'm not going to be walking around with a turban in Chicago." And the the lady was like, "Well, the the producers and they they all want you to wear it." I go, "Let them know I've done my research." You know, if I were like with the Northern Alliance or the Taliban in Afghanistan, yeah. But I go in Chicago. Trust me. 
I'm Iranian. I know Muslims. They don't. I go, maybe a little bit of scruff on the cheeks, you know, the beard, maybe a button all the way buttoned up. But at, the turban's a bad idea. She goes, all right, I'll tell them. Next day, I go to my dressing room. There's my shirt, my pants, and what looks like a scarf. And I'm like, oh, yeah, see, clearly they want me to wear a scarf. She's like, no, that's the turban. You just got to wrap it back up. <laughs> I'm like, oh, great. So I did the part and I felt kind of, I felt bad doing it. I was like, what am I doing? So when I came back, to Los Angeles, I told my agents, uh, I said, you know, no more terrorist parts. And then the TV show 24 had just started taking off and they got in touch and they were notorious for not telling you the plot of the show. You'd get an audition. You'd be like, he's a whatever. He's a guy who owns a laundromat, but there's going to be a twist. And you're like, what does that mean? Like, right. They go, like, well, we can't tell you. I was like, All right. So uh, they, the audition was for a terrorist. And I said, no, thanks. They go, but he changes his mind halfway through the mission i go "Ooh, the ambivalent terrorist that sounds cool <laughs> so that was the last time i did a terrorist part and then after that i said no more of this stuff so there's been a lot of auditions that have come in or now my uh, managers and agents know like my agent called me one time he's like listen i'm getting ready to pass on an audition that came in i just want you to make sure want to make sure you're cool with that i said sure what is it he goes just two words flight 98 or whatever it was united 98 or the the, the airplane that went down Oh, yeah, yeah. I go, are there any like FBI parts I could play? And he goes, yeah, but they're all white guys. I go, I oh, forget it. <laughs> right. Right. I don't want to play terrorist. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. 
Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You, uh, you've written a film script called Jimmy Vestwood, American Hero. Is this true? Is this, is this well, no, on this your is horizon? A, this, no, this was a movie that we, we actually did a few years you back. You did it. Yeah, we did it. We filmed it. So it was my, the first film I ever uh, wrote. I wrote with my friend Amir Ohebsian, and then our director was Jonathan Kesselman. It was basically my homage. I was a big fan of Pink Panther growing up. So it was kind of like my Persian Pink Panther. Okay. It's a storyline of a guy who's in Iran, he wins the green card lottery to come to America, and he's always wanted to be an American hero because back in the day, he used to watch Steve McQueen movies, and he comes to America, and he wants to be like a cop and save the day, but the best job he can get is working as a security guard at a Persian grocery store. And from there, he goes on to get involved in this plot. Anyway, the movie was, it was such a great experience because I got to get a lot of my friends to come on and do the movie with us. And it was just a lot of fun, but it was a lot of work. I have so much respect for filmmakers, you know, because we wrote it together. We crowdfunded the money. It's we awesome. ended up distributing it ourselves. And the truth is, it was like, it, it wasn't a financial success. But the first week we came out, we were in four theaters. And per screen average, we were number four. In, in the box office mojo after Captain America. That's awesome. And I was like, look at that. I got, I got, the, I got the screenshot <laughs> of it and everything. And, um, and to this day, there's clips of it now that people put on social media. So every once in a while, I'll see it circulating and I'm like, that's my film. So yeah, it was, it was a cool experience. You've done not one, not even two, but five comedy specials, starting with Axis of Evil, uh, in 2007, the access of that started as a tour, right? Yeah. So I've actually done six comedy specials, six comedy specials. Yeah. I just keep, you know, the, I think the key is Brian, that I keep talking about my life. And so as my kids grow, as I grow, as things change, um, you know, and, and also things I'm observing, I think like, you know, I, I'm not a sit down and write jokes kind of guy where they're just evergreen jokes that I'm going to be telling forever and ever. Right. So because of that, I've, I've been forced to, or I just keep, I, I keep getting up at the clubs in LA and I keep, uh, um, you know, writing new material. And so the access of evil comedy tour was a tour that actually started at the comedy store. Mitzi Shore put me and a few other Middle Eastern comedians together uh, right a little bit before September 11th. She was like, I think there's going to be a, she was almost, she had like an epiphany. She goes, there's going to be a need for a positive voice for Muslims Jeez. in the world. Yeah. And um, so, so she saw that and, uh, and then we toured 
and then that turned into a comedy special. Uh, that was in 07. And then my first solo special was called Brown and Friendly in 08. And then I've gone on and done, you know, the last one was called Pandemic Warrior, where I filmed it in Dubai. And now I got the new one coming out that I just filmed at the comedy store, which I'm calling The Birds and the Bees. The Birds and the Bees. Um, how do you decide when it's time to to film the special? Is there a date and you say to yourself, I got to be ready by now because if not by this date because if not i'll just keep tinkering or do you wait until you feel like you're you're ready for it you know i've been doing stand-up comedy consistently since i started in 98 and then really touring in 06 07 around there just constantly like all the time and so you're out doing you know in town you're doing 15 20 minute sets you tour you do one hour sets and it just keeps chiseling it's just chisel 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 and then there's nights where you're like wow what a night we should have filmed that and <laughs> and really like you know usually around a year and a half to two years in you've got this nice hour plus and then you start talking to your agents and managers you're like listen guys this is ready to go you're ready now yeah let's find the right place for it what's what's going to make it special um, and you know, this time around, like I said, I, I, I thought since I've done, I've done, I've filmed specials in Dubai. I've filmed the special in Stockholm, Sweden. I filmed the special at the Kennedy center. I've done LA and I was like, I've never done a club special. And I said, this is where I got my start. So let me go back at the beginning of the special. I'm, I'm, I tell the story of the whole turban thing again. And, uh, and yeah, it was great. I mean, it's, um, you know, the other thing I've learned in this business is you have to create your own opportunities because if you don't, ain't nobody going to call, right. you know? So I'm constantly just trying to create opportunities and, and it's just in my nature. I can't stop running. I think some immigrant mentality. I can't just pick my feet up and play video games. <laughs> in case it's not clear to everybody listening now, Maz is an incredibly smart guy gave the commencement speech at uh, UC Berkeley in 2017. Um, you're, I would say that there are two through lines through, if not all, most of your work, which is uh, politics and also your, your family, as you mentioned before. Do you feel like over the last 20 years that or 20 plus years you've been doing it and touring close to 20 years, do you feel like your politics has changed? Or do you feel like how you express your politics have changed? Well, let me go. Let me, first of all, thanks for saying I'm smart. I honestly like don't <laughs> feel smart. Like, I mean, I, I think, I think I'm relatively, listen, if you took the country of 350 million people, I would probably fall into the smart category, but there's so Top many half. people. Top half. I, I'd be, yeah, exactly. I think I think top, the median. I think in the median, I, I'm I'm in the top half. But okay. I've always been interested in politics, and I've always been a very, I don't know why, but I've always been a very kind of liberal, bleeding heart kind of like help. You know, if, if I can save the world, let me try and help save the world. Listen, first of all, coming from Iran and seeing what happened there with this religious fundamentalism and how all the rights were taken away. Last year when the protests happened in Iran, I went to some schools around Los Angeles and was speaking to these students about it. And I said, why should you care about Iran? First of all, you should care about Iran because they're fighting for democracy. And there is really a battle in many countries around the world of democracy versus 
uh, uh, autocracy or, 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 or dictatorships. And then I also said, if you guys think this stuff ain't happening in America, let me remind you that just last year, they took away a woman's right to choose. And in the decision, Clarence Thomas said that we're going to look at gay marriage next. And so, again, whether, you, whether you're pro or anti-abortion isn't the issue. It's the idea of like, do we want to live in a society where people have more freedoms and choices? Or do we want to live in a society where someone's traditional or fundamentalist ideology is going to tell me how and what I can do? Um, so I've always been pretty consistent with being very left-leaning and, um, and, and, and I've also, also been a big fan of comedians who are able to be funny, but also have a statement underneath it. So the truth is I, I kind of watch Colbert religiously because I get my news from there, you know, uh, John Oliver. Um, I participate myself. I'm, a, I'm, I'm one of the panelists from time to time on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me on NPR. Yeah. All of those things. And then you can go also, ba also back to like the George Carlins and the Richard Pryors and all those other guys who were making political statements. I, I'm always, uh, I've always been a fan of that. What's the best joke you've ever written? <laughs> you know, it's funny you say that because it's not even about the best. It's about, it's about the joke. Sometimes when I'm in my head, because sometimes the jokes are like stories. So you got to go a yes. while. You get the punchlines in the middle. Sometimes I'm on stage. I'm like, what joke can I do right now that's a minute or less that will help me get a laugh and finish the set? Right? Right. So one joke I do is I do a joke about how the worlds are different now. Now kids run the world. I said, when I was a kid, I used to have to play with the kids of my parents' friends. Now I have to play with the parents of my kids' friends. And I go, when I was a kid, we walk into a party. I was five years old. As soon as we walk in, my dad would be like, go, go play with Amir. And I was five years old. I was like, I don't want to play with Amir. He'd be like, go play with Amir. And I'd be like, Amir's 29 years old. And he'd be like, that's not my problem. That's his problem. He's their son. Till he finds a wife, you have to play with him. So that's one joke that I do. The other joke that I'll be honest with you, now that, it, that, you, that you're asking my favorite, it, it might be my favorite. Um, I was a big fan of Bjorn Borgs when I was a kid. And okay. a lot of people that aren't of you know our era don't know who Bjorn Borg is. Bjorn Borg, for those of you who don't know, was a tennis champion. He was like the Roger Federer or the Djokovic or the Nadal of my era. He was this amazing tennis champ. And he famously played John McEnroe in a U.S. Open match in the early 80s. He lost. And he said what he did. He didn't even wait around for the trophy ceremony. He walked out. He went to his hotel room. He jumped into the pool and he said, I never played tennis again. Like that was it. He was done. Well, he was my tennis hero and I hadn't heard about him in a long time. I'm on tour in Sweden. He's Swedish, by the way. I'm on tour in Sweden. It's this grueling tour with a different city every night. So I run out of clean underwear. So I tell the promoter, I go, I need underwear. He goes, go over there. We're at the airport. He goes, go buy it over there. So I go to buy underwear. They have Borg underwear. And it hits me, oh my God, Bjorn Borg has a line of underwear. That's what he's been doing all this time. He's got like an underwear line. So I buy the underwear. And so when I do this joke on stage, I tell that whole story and I go, and I'll be honest with you guys, I bought this underwear. It's the most amazing underwear. I've been recommending to all the guys, buy the Borg underwear. It's amazing. I go, now when I walk down the street, my balls just play tennis with each other. And then I make the sound and I go... <laughs> and then I go, ah, 
advantage, left nut. I go, it comes with an announcer. <laughs> so it's a fun bit. And it was, it was, yeah. So that's one of my fun favorite ones. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, you also have written a, a memoir. Yes. I'm not a terrorist, <laughs> but I played one on TV. Uh, writing is hard. I mean, I know you do a lot of it in small form, writing jokes or telling or writing stories. Rewarding for you? Absolutely. First of all, what was great about writing a book, it was like about, especially it's about yourself, is it's therapeutic because you're writing about stuff in your past. You have to think about it. You, got, you talk to your parents about it. A lot of st- a lot of memories come back, and it was it was great. It it was very daunting, and what I would do is so I actually I got a guy originally as a, as a touring comedian. I got this guy. I go, hey, his name was uh, uh, John Methvin. I said, why don't you? Uh, we we hired him to write it with me. And the truth is, as I got going, I realized you know I like writing, like I want to write with my own voice. So I would write it. I would send it to him. He would help you know, shape it, send it back. And then we'd go. So he, it was kind of like having an editor before having the editor. Okay. And, um, it helped because also I do better if I have a deadline and if I have a partner that helps with the deadline, because if I don't have a partner, I've got 50 projects just swirling in the air and I, and, and I might not get to it between walking the dog, dropping off my kids, right. You know, kissing my wife. There's a lot going on. So, um, <laughs> So it was daunting, but having deadlines, having an outline. So it's about, it's, don't look at it as like, oh, I got to write a 300 page book. Look at it as I got to write 15 chapters. Right. And then start with each one and go and go and go. And in the end, you're done. Right. Um, it, you're clearly thoughtful. I, I, I wonder your, your feeling about this. For me, so much about telling jokes, being funny in standup is about that live delivery. Whereas when you're writing and you're expecting someone to read it, by the way, this is why I think Steve Martin is such a genius because I will read his books and they still make me laugh. Did did you find anything particularly challenging about that? You know, it was interesting because the first, I think my first draft came across almost too serious. Okay. And the editor came back and said listen you're a comedian you need to make it funnier so then i was like okay now i gotta find ways like you said for it to read funny right that's a little bit of a challenge too because as you said like how does it read funny the but the one thing that it does give you is it gives you whereas in stand-up you're gonna cut a lot of the fat because you're telling a story you got to keep it moving with writing you you know keep it in keep it in it's it's even like the godfather when you read the godfather it's very different than watching it because i i I tell people i go when you read the godfather you find out that vito corleone feared one man and that was luca brasi and the only reason he feared luca brasi was because luca brasi was kind of a a a wild card in, in terms of his level of intelligence now when you watch it in the movie they try to convey some of that but luca brasi's nervous of Vito Corleone, right? So the thoughts, their thoughts, and Luca, you know, you get to go into that, which is kind of right. cool. Um, so, yeah, being funny was a little, little difficult, but I tried as much as I could, and and I think, I mean, you know, for the most part, I've gotten pretty good feedback. I'm always like pleasantly surprised when somebody shows up at one of my shows and has my book. I'm like, oh wow, and I, and I sign it, you know. So, I know. Yeah. 
Uh, all things comedy. You have a podcast on all things comedy called Back to School, right? Well, I had, I had. It's so done. We're done yeah, it's with done the podcast. for now. Because so what happened was I did this podcast called Back to School with Maz Jobrani. It was me and my opening act Tehran, who's uh, another fellow comedian. And really, it was just like it became an excuse to talk to interesting people. But really, it started with my kids asking me questions that I didn't have the answers to. So I was like, rather than me Googling, why don't I bring experts? Right. So we had like a guy named Frank Figluzzi who used to be an FBI agent. We had a guy named Firuz Naderi who helped land um, the rover on Mars. We had a lot of interesting people come on and it was very interesting to me. But as the touring started again, I realized I don't have as much time and I've really got to start focusing on dedicating my time. So we basically put it on ice for now and perhaps I'll get back into a podcast at some point. But for now, I'm just really focused on the touring and maybe pitching TV show ideas and all that stuff. I know how difficult the touring schedule is. I respect the hell out of you for doing it. I think I'm in the middle of being on the road for eight consecutive weeks, uh, part of weeks. Uh, so i I feel you, and I want you to know how much I appreciate you uh, coming on here and taking a little time to share with us your your journey and, and your experience. I wish you all success, and congratulations on the sixth comedy special. Seven, seven. Out of the seventh. Yeah, Now yeah. we're at seven? You said six. Well, yeah. Now no, no, we're at seven. Because, uh, let's count them. Access Evil, Brown and Friendly, uh, I Come in Peace, I'm Not a Terrorist, but I Play One on TV, uh, Immigrant, Pandemic Warrior, and this is The Birds and the Bees. The Birds and the Bees. On YouTube. It's coming out. It's coming out at the place of your comedic birth. Maz, yeah. thank you so much for joining me. Brian, thank you for having me. I really appreciate you. Maz, thank you so much for joining me today. This was such a a fun conversation this weekend you know what i'm gonna do i'm gonna binge watch every one of your specials kidding well kind of maybe listeners thank you so much for tuning in i'm gonna see you next week for another very exciting guest one that you might say is the opposite of ornate well their name is at least okay that's a terrible hint you're never gonna get it that's okay because guess what I'll see you next week. Off the Beat is hosted and executive produced by me, Brian Baumgartner, alongside our executive producer, Ling Lee. Our senior producer is Diego Tapia. Our producers are Liz Hayes, Hannah Harris, and Emily Carr. Our talent producer is Ryan Papa Zachary, and our intern is Sammy Katz. Our theme song, Bubble and Squeak, performed by the one and only Creed Brett. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 
16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers.